Mud Boots is brought to you by the Stewart Foundation. The Stewart Foundation is dedicated to improving the well-being and life outcomes for young people through education. To learn more, explore stewartfoundation.org. Welcome to Mud Boots. My name is Paul Reynolds, and I have the pleasure of journeying with you through the fields of education reform and innovation as we explore what whole child education is, where it came from, and how, after nearly a century of effort, how it's finally being implemented even in district public schools. For those who listened to our last episode, we had the pleasure of talking with two students, Matt Garber and Anton, who attended Sacramento City Unified Schools under Jonathan Raymond's tenure as superintendent. The students shared their experiences about what it felt like to be placed at the center of every decision and the surprising impact that it had. In this episode of Mud Boots, we're speaking with Karen Pittman, president, co-founder, and CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment. The Forum is a self-described action tank based in Washington, D.C., working with national, state, and local leaders in more than 35 states with a mission to get young people ready for life. Karen is a sociologist, author, and columnist, as well as one of the nation's top leaders on youth issues and youth policy whose career has included working at the Urban Institute, the Children's Defense Fund, the Academy for Educational Development, and the International Youth Foundation, as well as serving in the Clinton administration as director of the President's Crime Prevention Council, and then working with retired General Colin Powell to create America's Promise. Without further ado, let's hear from Karen. Welcome, Karen. It's great to have you on this episode of Mud Boots. Uh, where, where are you speaking from? I know you're calling in. I'm calling in from Washington, D.C., which is where our headquarters are. What, a, what an amazing, remarkable journey that you've had. Maybe you could just tell a little bit about the Forum for Youth Investment and, and what the mission is. The Forum for Youth Investment is, uh, as you said, an action tank. We're committed to changing the odds that all young people are ready for college, work, and life. We do that not by working directly with young people, but by providing leaders at the state, national, and local level with the ideas, the services, and connections to the networks that they need to be able to actually make uh, informed uh, decisions that are good for young people even despite having limited resources uh, or facing obstacles. So the forum really is committed to supporting leaders. Uh, We meet leaders where they are, both geographically, but also in the course of their own journeys for changing the odds for young people. And we try to help them go further faster with the information and tools that we have. How, How do you describe what whole child education is or educating the whole child? I think that When we begin to talk with people about the whole child, uh, we actually start with the concept of the whole child, not so much whole child education, um, which can get us very quickly to, is that what schools do? What do children from little to big, what do they need in order to grow and develop? And when you engage parents and families and educators and community leaders in a discussion about both what it is that young people need to have to be successful in terms of skills and competencies and values and experiences, but then also what they need to find in their community in order to be able to build and scaffold those skills and experiences and build their confidence. The answers come out pretty quickly and they come out pretty naturally that 
the learning opportunities for young people certainly are formalized in the school building, but they really exist in the entire community, and they start with parents and families. In Jonathan Raymond's book, Wildflowers, A Superintendent's Challenge to America, you wrote the foreword and you really shared some wonderful insights. You were very honest to say you were delighted to be tapped on the shoulder as one of the nons, right? The non-academic, non-cognitive, non-school, non-credit. But you're also quick to remind folks that the nons can't be just seen as disparate silos, their networks and systems that are interconnected. I wonder if you could just help us explore that, the work that you're doing in the community and how it's connected to that system. Starting with that language of the nons, one of the things that has happened over the years as educators have really tried to take responsibility for having this valuable swath of time that they have with young people and achieve uh, the outcomes that they're accountable for is that there's so there's so much that can and should and needs to happen inside of the school building, inside of the school day, inside of the school system that hires teachers and other professionals, et cetera. There's so much to to think about in managing that system. There really are very natural reasons why it's hard to think about what goes on outside the system. But the closer we get down to the young people and the people who are working directly with them, the more we understand the importance of those non-school spaces and people um, in young people's lives. A teacher who's greeting young people in the morning uh, and seeing that some young people are coming in looking tired, coming in looking stressed, showing up late, not coming at all. Others are coming in really ready to learn. That teacher has to ask, what was going on? (laughs) The more the wall between school and family and community gets sort of set up to make it either difficult or even sometimes inappropriate for the te- for, for the teacher to think that they should ask those questions or need to or should have that information or make it very difficult for them to get that information or if they're inclined to get that information then somehow make it their personal responsibility to do something about the information they got those are the conversations that happen when the focus on what happens in the building and in the classroom and what schools are directly responsible for When that focus gets such a a sort of a tight frame around it that we make it hard for the adults who work with young people to actually sort of permeate that boundary. The same happens from the outside. I was just in a meeting last week with a group of educators and civil rights leaders talking about this idea of equity and how social emotional learning and whole child sort of feed into this concept of equity. And they were very clear that community had to be a part of it. And one of the very quick discussions that they had was one of the uh, people at this meeting had just had the experience of having her son start kindergarten and essentially said what she was hit with was the fact that, you know, on in August, she walked him in to the early childhood center, helped him take off his coat, hang up his coat, spoke to the teacher, said a couple of things about what had been happening that day or that evening that she thought the teacher would know. And then in September, she was told, leave your kid at the door. We take him from here. Those are the kind of boundaries that that are not useful. So in some ways, the bringing the nons into school is an artifact of the fact that school has been defined in such a narrow way that we now have to have a reform effort that says 
Think about those non-academic skills and competencies. Think about the non-school hours. Think about the non-school professionals and what roles they may be playing. The non-conversation doesn't have the same meaning outside of the school building where people have not made that separation. That's that word boundaries. You know, I think we, we, we do have this definition of what, what school is and where learning happens. And it is, it's an old script. How do you connect the system better? Is, is that, is that part of the work? Because I, people would say, well, we, we have, we have childhood services. We have youth services, you know, those they're, they're after school programs, but it, it feels to me like part of the problem is that the connections aren't being intentionally made. That's, that is absolutely a part of the problem. Let me, let me take it down to, but I, I think there's so many problems that we could be tackling. And I think that when one of our jobs at the forum, and one of the reasons that we start with the ideas, so our sort of tagline is moving ideas to impact. And we spend a lot of time just trying to figure out how to help people, how to present people with ideas that make them pause and think differently. Because if you if you really start to think differently enough, then you you're forced to act differently, and then eventually you're forced to act together with other folks in a way that breaks down those silos and addresses that fragmentation. I actually picked that up when I was doing doing research, and I, I was reading the the mission statement to create opportunities and incentives for youth and adult leaders who think differently, act differently, and act together. And I love that idea of act together, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that we've learned is it is that progression. If you jump so that there's just a quick tangent. So there's been a collective impact movement, this idea that you really need to bring together these broad initiatives to have sort of population level impact on problems, which is true. And so we actually spend a good amount of our time working with public private initiatives or partnerships or coalitions folks from different spaces that have come together to try to solve a common problem. And to your point, one of the, one of the reasons that these things sometimes stumble and fail is that you have to get the people to think differently first. I can incentivize you for all kinds of reasons to come to a table and try to act together, but to really act together means that you have to decide the things that really can only be done if everybody's pulling and coordinating but you also have to make a commitment to go back and act differently inside the sphere of influence that you control. And so we can get, we can get coordination around the edges, but still have the core systems operating in ways that don't connect or don't complement each other. So I want to take a second and, and just go back inside the school building. Now that we have such a much deeper understanding of how learning happens, we've got the brain science, we have the science of learning and development that understands the importance of the contexts that we're building for young people to learn in and how young people react to these contexts. So we really do understand that learning is social and emotional. And again, I'm flipping language around because if we say social and emotional learning, some people, especially inside of schools, immediately think you want me to have a curriculum that I stick in between algebra and geography. <laughs> The research tells us this now. We have multiple studies that show that. So if learning is social and emotional, then inside that school building, what we've been asking folks to do is differentiate the spaces because the opportunities for integrated learning, the opportunities for practicing whatever you've learned, whether it's social skills, practicing emotion management, practicing leadership, practicing teamwork, problem solving, or practicing math, 
those opportunities are not limited to the classroom in which that's being taught. I could be taught emotion management techniques in my classroom, but if nobody's encouraging me to use those on the playground or use them in the cafeteria, then they're not being reinforced. So we have to really think of even the building um, or the building in the grounds, think of that as multiple opportunities where learning happens and ask, what are the opportunities for the whole child (laughs) to actually be tapped in all of those settings? And that's a question we can bring into the building and have that question with educators. The other thing that we do when we have that, we often talk school and then we go right to the word teachers and there's so many other people who are in the building both people who are on the payroll of the school of the school district and the school but also people who are coming in and out of the building as volunteers and other professionals and we don't acknowledge the importance of making sure all the adults who are in the building understand that learning is social and emotional and get credit for the things that they are doing to support young people in all of those spaces. Right. So if we can cultivate a you know, universal language that, as you say, transcends the, the teacher in the classroom and it is everywhere in the environment, then it does become an organic part of the, the culture and community of the school. And once we start to think not about these big ideas of school and out of school or school and community, but you start to identify the environments in which learning can happen and start to assess them for, basically really assess them for their flexibility. Um, How much can that environment really be used to support the whole child? I mean, it could be too focused on just giving them a safe space, but not creating the other opportunities needed, or it could be on the other extreme too focused on just pushing academic content so there isn't room. So once we know and can name those those opportunities for learning, the, the that said that ring of opportunities blurs out of the school building into other places. It blurs into the family, which is an informal place where a huge amount of learning happens and is supported and skill building happens and is reinforced. It blurs into many of those organizations that you named, youth organizations, faith-based organizations, rec centers, libraries, other organizations and institutions in the community where learning can happen. And then it goes out into the neighborhoods um, and the parks and the playgrounds and the streets. And so when you look at the totality of where learning can happen, also goes into, by the time you get to teenagers, it goes into volunteer experiences and uh, summer job experiences and internships and things that are giving them all of the kinds of experiences that they need to be successful as young adults. So one of the things that in some ways could really elevate both the idea of what it takes to support the whole child and support whole child education or whole child learning, not as what the school does, but as what we want to maximize, if we all basically said, you know, young people should really have, I'm just making up a number, they should have 60 hours of quality learning opportunities every week. Where are those opportunities? And by the time I've named a number, 60 or 70 hours, and I've named and I'm named and defined quality in terms of the opportunity for them working on social and emotional and cognitive skills in service of the mastery of some kind of or exploration of some kind of content, whether that's art or music or the environment, whatever. If I ask that question, the answer is we have no idea. We don't have any kind of data system in communities that parents should know, we would hope, 
right. where their kids are. And parents are the main navigators of trying to build that network of learning opportunities that meet their kids' needs, build on their kids' interests, and meet their own schedules and meet their own financial situation. But once you paint that bigger picture of where and when learning happens and begin to ask how much is really happening and how much of what's happening is good, you get very quickly to the kind of serious inequities that Jonathan identified in his book. Not all kids by any means have equal learning opportunities. And that gets us back to one of the main reasons that schools were set up in the beginning. If you go back to Jonathan's references to to John Dewey, they were not just set up to teach academic content. They were really set up to make sure that there was a minimum threshold of hours in which quality learning was happening. So if the school isn't balanced, and if the school isn't actually being set up to, in some ways, compensate for whatever seems to be missing in that larger environment, it may be exacerbating the problem. So again, one of the valuable things about the work that Jonathan did in Sacramento was the time that he actually spent in the community getting to know not just the other organizations, but actually getting to know the community and the commitment that he made to make sure parents were welcome. So that story that I said about the kid being left at the door, Jonathan immediately responded to families have to be willing to be, be able and feel comfortable coming into these schools. Every school should have a welcoming center. Every school should have a room where parents are invited in. Teachers should be going out and meeting with parents in their homes, not just when their kids are in trouble, but just because that's a part of the process. So all of those things, again, to break down those boundaries and essentially say this is a community of people, some paid, some professional, some relatives who are supporting young people's growth and development in their own ways. And these people, if we set it up right, actually move with pretty much ease between the different settings. The great thing about the, the Forum for Youth Investment is that you actually are watching what's happening across the entire country. I, I know you're in, in at least 35 states that you're working in or have worked in. Are, are, Karen, are you, are you seeing best practices emerge? I'm assuming you do. Is there a, do you get a sense that it, it's happening more, people are naming it more or better or more accurately? What's, what's from your vantage point from D.C. looking across the nation, what's your assessment of what's, what's going on out there on the landscape? We certainly want decision-making to be data-driven, but we also want it to be reality-driven. You don't know what's behind the data until you get in there. So those kinds of things are happening. And of course, over the past five years, there's lots of conversations about equity and the importance of equity. The other thing that's happening is just looking at and acknowledging the differences and not just differences by racial or ethnic or income group, but also just differences by neighborhood or school catchment area, however you want to look at the geography and the extreme diversity that you have or disparity that you have in different neighborhoods. And then the fact, once you've got these folks together around the table, the fact that those disparities correlate, that the neighborhood that has the weakest schools is also the neighborhood that may have the most limited uh, access to after-school programs, is also the neighborhood where the library has been closed for two years and that they have their tra- their mean time on transportation to get some places twice as long as other folks. Those things all, and, and they're a food desert and they're really using emergency rooms rather than primary care centers. 
those kind of things when you can when 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 communities are using the data capacity, both the analytics and the visualization data capacity to actually paint the bigger picture. We talk a lot about helping people see the big picture because these things correlate and interrelate. And you're always going to be disappointed if because your job is to fix one thing. My job is to get kids graduating from high school with these skills. In order to fix that, all those other issues may have to be addressed, <laughs> which means eventually you have to think differently about how to at least ask whether young people have those issues so you can actually help. You may have to act differently to readjust the resources that you have, as Jonathan did in Sacramento. So if young people don't have any access to music and arts in the after school hours, if in the summertime when the school buildings in Sacramento were actually gated closed, you saw young people just on the streets because they didn't have places to go, you take the gates down. Those are the kind of things that are beginning to happen. Um, so whether we want to call them best practices, you know, that's sort of evaluator language to say, has this actually been evaluated and shown to work? These are certainly promising practices that are going in the right direction that are consistent with, if we start to think differently, do we see evidence that people are acting differently? Absolutely, yes. Do we see evidence that they're actually coming together to act differently? Yes. At the policy level, are there things that you hope could happen, are happening? Is there anything from a policy level that you think is important for us to to embrace and support? Always. There, there, there are lots of things happening at the policy level from federal down to, to, to local, um, down to district. I would say as we're having this conversation, one of the most important one of the most important conversations that's happening, and again, this there is there are good things happening as a result of this, is just the connection between school policies at the district or the state level around suspension and expulsion, uh, and that that connection to whole child education. You can't educate the child if they're not there, <laughs> and the 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 serious way in which suspension and expulsion has become a discipline tool down into the elementary grades. I mean, it used to, it's, we've always had it, but in the past decade, it's been pushed down so rapidly, even to discussions about, you know, preschoolers being sent home. Again, recognizing that that response is a response to something which is everything we've been talking about that for whatever reason, young people are coming into the school environment out of environments and situations that basically have left them stressed or traumatized or hungry or whatever that's or caused them to be late, that things are happening in this larger system that we're not acknowledging and we're not we're not acknowledging the reality of young people's lives so that they is the minute they walk in the door, they're butting into a rule that if they break it, it kicks them back out into the environment, which isn't being supportive enough uh, to begin with. So there's lots happening in that space to recognize that. And, and obviously lots happening in that space to also disaggregate the data and look deeply at not just the, the differences between males and females, between black and white students in terms of their suspension rates, but also just differences, deeper differences in expectations for those students. There's, there is a, a popular image that's used in education called the learning pit. 
And if you just Google Learning Pit and look at images, you'll see hundreds of different images. But the, the basic image is just sort of a, a, a U. And the idea that learning is hard. So if I'm up here on one side of the U, on a little ledge on the U, and I'm about to learn something new, I inevitably, as a kid or an adult, I go, wow, this is hard. I can't do it. I want to quit. Maybe I'm not good enough. I have all those doubts, and I hit a wall. And then if I actually have the skills and I have the support of peers and adults around me, I get over the wall and I go, well, maybe I'll ask for help. Maybe I'll try it a different way. Maybe I'll work with a partner to do this. And I get up to the other side in which I've now mastered the learning. So that image of a learning pit is a very popular one that adults and teachers use to sort of explain the frustrations of the learning experience. The question that we're asking communities to tackle at the forum and, and asking folks in these different systems to tackle is a very basic question, which is, to what extent do your organizational policies and practices support good developmental practice? If we're asking people to just systematically look at how they're setting up their environment, how they're hiring and training and charging the adults in that environment, what kind of services or activities or supports they're offering in that environment, and, and how they're structured, how young people go through those in space and time. Do they sit at desks in 45-minute periods with bells ringing? How do they do that? Well, we can come up and talk about federal policy and things like that. But institutions that have responsibility for young people have a set of organizational policies. One of the things that's happening is we're beginning to get people to ask, are those organizational policies supportive of whole child development. We are coming toward an end of our time on this episode of Mud Boots. Parting thoughts. I want to make sure that we we always we're giving people an opportunity if there's if there's one particular piece of advice, encouragement, and insight that you you would be upset if you didn't if you didn't have a chance to share, you know, is there something that you could like to add to the conversation that you haven't? I think we have covered a lot, but I would would, uh, just end by summarizing and emphasizing the things that we now know well. One really is that learning is social and emotional. Young people are learning and experiencing all the time. And whatever it is that we want them to know or learn from a content perspective has to be integrated in with how they are feeling, how they are assessing the places where learning happens. And then the second is that young people are probably the first and best source for us to understand what needs to be changed. If we don't start by talking to young people and their families, we will make lots of policy mistakes in the future. You know, with any luck, we've, we probably have listeners who have been in the whole child movement for a long time and hopefully are happy that we're, we're putting the spotlight and amplifying the foundational work that has already been done. There are probably some people who are just beginning to tune in, you know, across the community and say, wow, this is this whole child is, is something that we should be doing more intentionally or or starting to do. Is there are there any practical next steps if somebody finishes up the podcast and says, what do I read? Is there a resource? What would you recommend? You know, one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast is I would really recommend Jonathan's book. We talk about Wildflowers, a school superintendent's challenge to America as a virtual site visit of what it means 
to not implement whole child education, but to put children first in every decision that you make. And that's what he was able to do over the course of four years. And the examples of both how decisions were presented to him and how he responded to them, I think give the most organic understanding of what it looks like when you have this deep respect for young people and their families and the community, and you make the decision to put children first and take risks as a school leader. Thank you so much for sharing time with us today. I know we could actually talk for hours and hours doing this, but hopefully a a little slice of this conversation will help inspire and motivate others to, to join the movement and to really embrace that belief, to to put our kids first and let everything else follow from that. So thank you so much for what you're doing and what the Forum for Youth Investment is doing. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure talking with you. Next week on Mud Boots, we head back to the West Coast to speak with Dr. Josh Garcia. Dr. Garcia serves as the Deputy Superintendent of Tacoma Public Schools, a district that has evolved into a case study of whole child inaction. Join us as Dr. Garcia speaks to the policies and framework that the Tacoma Public Schools have implemented to empower the potential of every child. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mud Boots. For more information about this podcast or other resources on whole child education, journey to www.wholechildchallenge.org. Keep those mud boots handy and join us on the next episode. Mud Boots is a co-production of the Stewart Foundation and Fable Vision Studios.